0: Our text tonight is in 2 Timothy 4 and verses 16 through to the end of the chapter. And really in this letter that Paul is writing, his last letter that he would write, they draw together the end of a life of faithful service. And as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is a a sense of sadness in them at some of the people and the situations which he describes. But also there are encouragements as well. And the troubles that Paul faced even towards the end of his life are really the same types of struggles that so many pastors and churches continue to face even in this 21st century. And last time we were in this passage, we said that one of the main lessons that comes from these verses is that gospel ministry serving the Lord Jesus is bound up in dealing with people. And we cannot serve the Lord effectively on our own. It is when we're able to serve alongside others and depend on others and delegate and serve with co-workers for the gospel that we'll know more effectiveness and also in that that team, as it were, we'll know that togetherness and that joy in service. And Paul invested his life in people and many of these people were engaged in the work with him and they were dependable and they were responsible they were trustworthy they were committed they were eager to serve and he mentions some of them we've looked at them already some he wants with him in the last days for his comfort to finish some of the ministry so Timothy and Luke and Mark he wants them around him some of them are serving in strategic places for the gospel elsewhere so you've got folk like Crescens and Titus and Tychicus. And so you've got this mix. You've got faithful old friends who have been serving alongside Paul for many years. And then there's also faithful new friends, some of which we'll meet in a few moments as we go through the verses together. But we also saw that in Paul's life and in his ministry, there were those who had proved difficult for him. Those who had been unfaithful those who would be inconsistent and untrustworthy, those who never really gave themselves to the work, those who were also outright enemies of Paul and of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And there are those mentioned because of the grief and trouble that they brought to him, and we read the names as we went through the passage together. So Demas and Alexander and those who deserted him. And so ministry is full of people, some for good, some for bad, and so facing execution, people are on Paul's heart and mind. And so serving the Lord in Christian ministry, living for the eternal good and benefit of others, is relationally hard. Dealing with people is not easy. And we are real people too, for those of us who are in leadership. You know, we need your prayers. We are are real people just like you. And uh, we feel just like you. And that was true for Paul as well. And so we, we need your prayers. And so we have this picture of the Lord's people coming together in mutual service, depending on each other, serving alongside, working together. But the reality is that sometimes this is disrupted because of unfaithful people and enemies. But it is such a blessing when the Lord grants friendships and when there is the blessings of relationships in serving the Lord, sharing our heart together, passion in seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed and people coming to know the Lord for themselves. And so Paul is speaking about all of these things. And so tonight we draw it together. And he continues to think of those who serve with him as the gospel, but also those who are a hindrance. And so As we go through these final ones, in these final verses, I would ask you again to consider where would you be? Who are you like? If Paul was writing about you, what would you be like? What would he say about you? And who do you want to be like by God's grace? What legacy do you want to leave? Well, verse 16, we see a group really called the no-shows. My first offence, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May not be charged against them. Now, no doubt, we've met people like this, but you may not know it. But we know of them, but we don't really know them because they were never there. We didn't serve with them because they never showed up or really committed themselves to being truly in the work. And Paul says, at my first offence, no one stood with me. Now, what is he speaking of? Well, Paul is speaking of a first appearance in, uh, in court in Rome. And so when Paul was taken prisoner this last time, he was taken to Rome. And in the Roman justice system, there would be two hearings. So there would be an initial assessment, the first hearing about the investigation and the charges and looking at the criminal and who was being charged. And so Paul was taken prisoner because he had broken Roman law by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, by preaching the truth of God and preaching against the false gods of the Roman Empire. And he'd been captured potentially at Troas, he'd been taken to Rome, and he had been just hauled away from where he was without any belongings or friends. And some suggest that because of Paul's status, he was well known as being the major spokesperson for Christianity, that he would have been even brought before the emperor, Emperor Nero. Now, if it wasn't Nero, it would have been one of the most powerful judges in the Roman Empire. But there is strong suggestion that he would have been before Nero himself. Now, it's likely that this first hearing happened not very long before he wrote this second letter to Timothy, And in that first trial, as he was brought to the court, there was no one to stand with Paul. There was no one to support him. In that sense, humanly speaking, he was all alone before the great power of Rome. No one was beside him. No one was there to defend him. No one was to speak up for him. And you might be thinking, well, you know, where was Luke? We've said before that Luke was with him on his journeys. Well, it may well have been that if Paul was seized and taken, Luke had not managed to get to Rome in time. And then you might wonder, what about Anesophorus, who's mentioned, if you look at the first chapter, it is said that he came to Paul often and refreshed him. Well, where was he? Well, again, it seems that he was in a similar position to Luke, and he wasn't there in Rome at the time of the first hearing. But it's more than just Luke or Anesphorus not arriving in time. Paul says that the people forsook him. They deserted him. It's the same word that he uses when he speaks about Demas in verse 10. In other words, they left him at the worst possible time. They abandoned him when he needed them most. They just were not there. And the idea is that they were embarrassed by him. They were afraid to be identified with Paul, the great spokesperson for the Lord Jesus Christ, because the cost was too great. It's a tragedy, really, that Paul was left in such a way. Now, we can understand why there would be that anxiety about standing publicly with Paul, because only a few years before, there had been a great fire in the city of Rome. And uh, Nero had blamed the Christians. And so as a result, Nero had ordered a persecution of the followers of Jesus Christ. And so some had been taken and sewn into animal skins, and they'd been attacked by wild dogs who ripped them to shreds, and often for the entertainment of the the, the great and the good in Rome. Some also were wrapped in pitch, and they were set on fire to light Nero's garden parties. And so to stand with Paul would bring great risk, and it seems that for many the cost was just too great and they didn't show up. But, you know, friends, even today, there are the no-shows. All those who seek to the Lord, seek to serve the Lord, will have people around them that are like this. And today, in our circumstances, even in our country here, the cost is not as great as it was then. And yet there are still the no-shows who keep their distance. They're more interested in what suits self. And, you know, they may be interested. They like to watch others stand and serve. They like to see others engage the enemy. They just don't really want to get involved themselves. They don't want to identify or people to think that they belong to somewhere like here. And so they keep themselves on the edges. They they pile up on the edge and they're not really engaged in the battle. And there's always some excuse. There's always some reason to make sure that they don't have to get too involved. But you know, Paul's attitude and our attitude should be so gracious. You know, you look at Paul and what he says. He says, may it not be charged against them. That's an incredible statement, you know. It's a wonderful response. He knew that these brethren were weak-hearted, and Paul battles any feelings of bitterness that he may have with forgiveness. He shows the same attitude as his master, the Lord Jesus, who even as he hung on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And friends, I'll tell you this, in the ministry, the no-shows can really cut deep. And they can cause all manner of frustrations and hurts and bitterness if you don't have the same kind of forgiving attitude that Paul demonstrates here. They're always going to be there. As one explains, they hide in the grey twilight of apathy. They never stick their head out. They leave us lonely to carry the battle without their help, but often with their criticism. They are around, but never really with us. Paul had them And you will have them. And so the no-shows, this group, Paul is there in the midst and it's a tragic situation that he has to stand in this way. But then in total contrast, you've got the faithful friend. You have this wonderful contrast of the most faithful, the most wonderful friend, the Lord Jesus. And you know, this text is just so good. The Lord stood with me. Nobody else was there. Everybody else had left him, but the Lord was with him. The true friend that sticks closer than a brother, the friend who will never leave or forsake, the ever reliable, ever faithful friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord was with him. Unlike those unfaithful ones who'd let him down, he delights here in the faithfulness of the Saviour. Friend, you know, you're here tonight, and you're not here tonight by accident. And I'm not sure what you're facing in your life at this moment, but I know this. The thing that matters above all else is knowing Jesus Christ and knowing that he is with you whatever storm you might be in the midst of at the time. And the Lord Jesus Christ will never fail you. People may let you down. Promises may be broken. But the Lord Jesus always keeps his word and never fails his people. To give you some idea of what the situation was like that Paul was facing, the trial would have taken place in a large uh, basilica in Rome. It was a massive cross-shaped building, much like a cathedral to date. And in the centre, you would have a great magistrate's throne, and then you'd have this council of assessors who would advise on the law but wouldn't make any official judgment. So this great throne of ivory was on this platform in the middle, surrounded by this council of assessors and then you'd have seats for the vips the kind of the distinguished persons in rome also those who just wanted to be there to watch who were of status and then you'd have seats for those actually engaged in the trial so you'd have this great big group of sort of officials and then in the midst you would have the prisoner. And around them you'd have the prosecution, the accusers, and then you may have the defence or the advocates, but Paul didn't have that. He was on his own. And so this central section where the trial actually happened would be railed off. And then in the rest of this vast building you'd have galleries running down, one gallery for men and one for women, And then beyond that, in spaces beyond that, you would just have spaces for whoever wanted to come and to watch the trial. And a big trial like this would draw a lot of attention. Whenever there was a trial of interest, there would be huge crowds coming in just to see what was happening. And that would have been the situation with Paul. And so thousands would have crushed in to hear the defense of this well-known preacher of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of all of this, in this this huge crowd and this hostile crowd, Paul's on his own. There's no one with him, no one to speak to him and speak for him, no one to witness on his behalf. Humanly speaking, he is totally alone before this vast group of people who are set from a human point of view to decide on his future. But the Lord was with him. And the Lord was standing with him. Paul was not alone. And you know, Paul was never alone in that sense. It's the same for us. There may be times when we feel alone from a human point of view, but if we are true believers, we are never alone. Because Jesus is always with us. And that's a great encouragement to us. Our faithful friend, always with us, will never let us down made me think of the story of George Matheson, who's the author of that hymn that we've just sung, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go. He was a Scottish man. He was born in Glasgow, 27th of March, 1842, and he was born into a a huge family, and uh, he was very gifted, and he would excel at school, and he would go on to study, I think, classics and logic and philosophy at Glasgow University. He was so talented that he would graduate with first-class honours at the age of 19. But as he was completing his studies, a deep tragedy came to him. He was diagnosed with an incurable condition, which meant that he was going rapidly blind and there was nothing that could be done. And such a trial was severe enough, but for George, there was an added blow... Because whilst at university, he'd met and he'd fallen in love with a, a girl, a fellow student, and they were set to be married. They were planning to be married and to spend their lives together. But when he was diagnosed, he broke the news of his impending blindness to her and asked if she would still marry him. And her answer came with force and it inflicted a very deep wound. She said, I don't want to be the wife of a blind man. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Years later, that painful memory would come flooding back on the evening of his sister's wedding. And it was then that he wrote his most famous hymn, the hymn that we sung. And by that time, he was a pastor, even though he was blind, and he was in faithful ministry. In fact, Queen Victoria called him to preach for her at Balmoral, and she also published one of his sermons from the book of Job. But that evening of his sister's wedding... He explains when he wrote the hymn, and he says, My hymn was composed in the manse, that's the, uh, the church uh, home that he lived in, on the evening of the 6th of June, 1882. I was 40 years of age, and I was all alone in the manse, and it was the night of my sister's marriage, and the rest of the family were staying overnight in Glasgow, and something happened to me which was known only to myself and caused me the most severe mental suffering. This hymn was the fruit of that suffering, and he says it was the, the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. He said, I had the impression of it being dictated to me by some inward voice rather than of working it out myself. And he said, I'm sure that the whole work, the whole hymn was completed in five minutes, and it never received at my hands any retouching or correction. It came like a day spring from on high. You see, it was through the deep trials of illness and desertion that George Matheson had come to place all his trust, all his hope in the faithful friend Jesus Christ and in the love of Christ for him. And the Lord stood with him. You know, George would never actually marry, but he continued to prove the truth of his hymn that there was that love that would never let him go, the love of Christ. And that's why his hymn remains a favorite of believers whose lives are touched with suffering or with tragedy or with loss because they know too that underneath them are the everlasting arms of a loving God who'll never let them go. And you see, the Lord stood with Paul. He stands with George and he stands with all those who know and trust and love him. But you know, it's more than that. You see, the Lord didn't just stand with Paul. We're also told that the Lord strengthened him. This is a wonderful thing. You know, it literally gave him the strength and the power in that situation to stand strong. And Paul felt that upholding, that empowering. So even though he was faced with these thousands of hostile faces, he would preach the gospel with boldness and with clarity and with impact. He would preach a full gospel. You know, it's amazing. There he is on trial for his life. He knows that persecution is rife against Christians. He's standing before the highest Roman authority, perhaps even before the emperor himself. The crowds are rammed in. People are watching. They are waiting to hear. He is standing alone. And yet the Lord gives him the strength and boldness to preach Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. And He says before all those who will hear that there's no other Savior, that there's no other hope for sinners, but to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. No half measures the full gospel in power. And friends, our gospel is still the same today. And if you're here tonight and you don't know what it is to be a real Christian, it is to turn from everything else and to trust in Jesus Christ. It is to trust that he is the only one who can make you right with a holy God. It is to trust that he is the only one who can deliver you from that enmity with God and that broken relationship with God and bring you into a place where you can know God. Also, his work upon the cross to deal with your sins. And it must have been something to hear him. And what tremendous courage for that man with special grace to stand in that circumstance and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that all the Gentiles might hear people from all over the Roman Empire present at that trial and confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ. The Lord stood with him and strengthened him. And then he says that he was delivered from the lion's mouth Now that's a a proverb which means to be delivered from the jaws of death. And it's found in the Old Testament as well, Psalm 22 and Psalm 35, no doubt also has a a link. Uh, Some of you may know the story of Daniel, the Old Testament prophet. who was literally delivered from the lion's mouth. And there is a a sense in which it also refers to the ongoing work of of Satan, the enemy who's like a, a roaring lion who attempts to devour and disrupt and be against Paul. But the Lord's purpose for Paul was not yet done. And even though it must have been so frightening in one way, it must have been thrilling for Paul to know that God was with him, that the Lord was with him and using him. And he also saw in terms of reminding him that his future was not in doubt that even though man might come against him, even though man might take his life, he had a glorious future because he knew Jesus Christ. Look what he says, verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. And so Paul had confidence in the hope that was his in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had that certainty that on the basis of the Lord's work, On the basis of the saving work of Jesus Christ and his work in his life in the present, he had hope in the future. You know, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you've got no real hope tonight. But those of us who do know him, we have a certain hope. And Paul had that hope. He could trust that the Lord would deliver him from all that would come against him, all plots against his life, until the time came for him to go home to glory. Paul says, he will deliver me. He will save me. And he has in view the ultimate salvation that he spoke of in Romans 13, where he says, now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. His eyes are fixed on eternity. He's speaking of departing and going to be with Christ, which is far better. He's speaking of being absent from the body, present with the Lord. He knew that the Lord who had brought him this far we're bringing home to glory. In spite of all of the troubles and the difficulties and the loneliness and the pain, he knew that the outcome was not in doubt. And no earthly friend can do that for you. They can't deliver you from every evil work and preserve you for the eternal kingdom. There is only one friend who can do that. Only one friend who is always there and will be with you even at the very end and for all eternity. That's the Lord Jesus. He stood with Paul, and if you trust him, he'll stand with you. And he'll strengthen you and lead you through. And he alone gives us real hope in the darkest days of our lives, in the darkest days of gospel ministry. He alone is the one who gives us all that we need to complete the work that he has given us to do. And to do it until he takes us home. And as Paul thinks on that, you know he just bursts into praise. He says to him, be the glory forever and ever. And there he is. Imagine this. There he is in a dark, stinking, rotting, disgusting dungeon surrounded by 30 or so of the very worst criminals that Rome could lay their hands on. He's in a a hole in the ground with sewage leaking in from a nearby sewer. And there is Paul. And what is he doing? He's praising God. You see, nothing else in this world can give you hope like that. That's the wonder of knowing Jesus Christ. Praising God who is going to bring him home to glory. And when he starts thinking about heaven, all that lay ahead, his heart is lifted even in the darkness in praise to the glory of his God. Amazing grace. And then as the letter comes to an end, we'll just look at these friends that he mentions faithful old friends look at verses 19 to 20 he says greet Prissa and aquila in the household of anesophorus erastus stayed in corinth but trophimus i have left in miletus sick who are these people well Prissa, priscilla and aquila they're mentioned six times in the new testament and paul had met them in a place called corinth in acts 18 he'd actually lived with them for a time And uh, he'd also worked with them. They knew the same trade. And in fact, they left Corinth and they went with Paul to Ephesus. And so they went with him in gospel service. And having learned from Paul, they actually taught Apollos. And when Paul wrote Romans around six years later after that time, they were living in Rome. But Romans 16.3 says that Prissa and Aquila, who'd been in Corinth, been in Ephesus, been in Rome, left Rome because of the persecution that was ordered by Emperor Claudius. And so when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, they had a church in their house in Ephesus once again. And really what that tells us, for all their movement, this faithful couple, they love the Lord and they're willing to serve the Lord wherever the Lord and his cause needed them. And that's a wonderful thing to see. They were not bound, they were not closed to what the Lord had for them. They were available, and wherever they were, they were totally committed to the work of the gospel. They were in it. They were dear old friends of Paul and fellow workers, and I tell you something, the church needs couples like that today. And then you've got the household of Onesiphorus, mentioned in chapter 1. He came to visit Paul often when he was in the prison and refreshed him. And Paul wants Timothy to greet his family. Because they're precious to him, this family, they are a faithful family who have cared for Paul, who'd supported Paul and who'd be rewarded in glory for their friendship. Then Erastus verse 20, and he's likely to be the Erastus mentioned in Acts 19, he'd been with Paul and he'd served alongside Paul and Timothy for many years. And in fact, Paul trusted Erastus that he'd been sent by Paul into Macedonia to preach the gospel. And so they went back a long way. They were, they were good friends. And at this stage, Erastus was following up the work in Corinth, which was certainly with many challenges. But Paul trusted Erastus. He was a good friend, a faithful friend, and a fellow servant. And then you got Trophimus. Now, Acts 20 tells us that he was from Asia Minor, he was an Ephesian. And uh, he worked alongside Paul. He was one of the ones who'd helped carry the Gentile offering to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And uh, he'd been with Paul on many of his uh, circumstances. He'd been with Paul at Troas. He'd been there when Eutychus had fallen out the window and was resurrected. And in fact, Trophimus had also been an unwitting factor in Paul being arrested in Jerusalem. You can read that in Acts 21, but he was still a good, beloved old friend, but he was sick. And Miletus, which was far from his home in Ephesus, is where Trophimus was. And so we see that Paul has great concern for him and desires that indeed he be remembered. His dear friend Trophimus, very sick in Miletus. And so Paul is there in that rotting dungeon in the ground. Demas is gone. Crescens is gone. Titus is gone. Tychicus is gone. Priscilla and Aquila, the family of Onesiphorus, Erastus, Trophimus—they're all elsewhere. And so now only Luke was with him. And so he desires for Timothy to come as soon as possible. And he says, Timothy, please come as quick as you can. Don't leave it too late because if he doesn't come before winter he wouldn't be able to go and Paul longed for fellowship with Timothy his son in the faith to share his heart with him one last time aware that his time was limited upon this earth and so he says Timothy come as quickly as you can and then this final group 21 faithful new friends Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia and all the brethren well who are they? Well, maybe you've noticed, or maybe not, but they're all Latin names. And that suggests that they're believers who are part of the church right there in Rome. And so he sends greetings from them to Timothy, the ones who have not been scattered in the persecution. They are new friends. Now, instantly, you may think as I did, well, where were they in his trial? Well, they weren't there. But even still, Paul forgives them. And he wants Timothy to develop that relationship with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you're just looking over all those names and you may not have caught all the various details, but our life is made up of these kinds of people. New friends, old friends in the gospel, faithful people, unfaithful people, friends, enemies. And Paul lays it all out before Timothy as he draws the letter to a close. And then his last recorded words in Scripture, verse 22. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Paul desired for the Lord Jesus to strengthen Timothy in his inner man. He wants Timothy to be strong, to take the work on, to know the enabling of Christ. And he prays that this grace would not just be with Timothy, but the you there is with a a, a plural sense. So it's all the believers at Ephesus. And Paul reminds them and us that this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, is about grace. God's undeserved and constant favor in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is grace that saves us. It is grace that keeps us in our ongoing walk with the Lord and in our service of Jesus Christ. And that's the last recorded thing that Paul sets down under the inspiration of the Spirit, grace, all of grace. In serving the Lord, we see that working with others is vital. Paul had those around him who were strong and committed and faithful and dear friends. And, you know, one of the joys in the Christian life is to serve the Lord alongside brothers and sisters like that. And that's what I pray for us here in the fellowship, that our friendships will be grounded in Jesus Christ, And they're precious. They're unlike anything that this world has to offer. And the Lord Jesus Christ always intended that the believer's relationship with him will be the binding factor in our friendships with other believers. And such relationships, when they are there and they show Christ, they magnify Christ and they magnify grace. And the Lord is pleased to work with frail, fallible vessels like we are. And it reminds us how important we are to each other in the local church, that we belong together, that we need to function together. And wherever the Lord has set you, if you're visiting us tonight, the Lord has set you there to serve him. And we are blessed to our brothers and sisters around us to work together for the glory of Christ. And I pray that the Lord would increase our love for one another, that we would be truly in the work together that we wouldn't be standing back on the edges, but we would be strengthening one another to serve faithfully and use whatever the Lord has given to us. And so I ask you, are you actively seeking that, or have you set your limit? Have you actually stepped back rather than forward? Do you focus more on what you cannot do rather than seeking what you can do? We need to be those, if we love the Lord Jesus, are available to serve him. We can only serve in his power, in his strength, dependent upon him, loving and trusting, available for whatever he has for us. And we can know that he will stand with us and he will keep us. And all the way our saviour leads us, we can trust him and know that he will never fail. Friend, I pray that the Lord would help us and I pray that you would know Jesus And that you'd want to serve him. And that you'd look forward to that day when you'll be with him forever. Amen.